Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. All right, this is episode 38 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It is Friday, December 3rd. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccine. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered, no matter what YouTube is doing to us. And I'll give you some information on that here in just a moment. But let me just mention to you real quickly before we get to today's news. If you tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage that you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where RedRiverYourWay.com comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, the freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. RedRiverYourWay.com wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options, and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection on their website, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, so we got a uh, we got a, a note from um, from YouTube this morning. We got a note from YouTube this morning saying that they uh, bless their hearts. They they just uh, they hate to do it, but they had to delete one of our shows off of YouTube. Hi, Doc Washburn. Our team has reviewed your content, and unfortunately, we think it violates our misinformation policy. We've removed the following content from YouTube. The Doc Washburn Show, November 22nd, 2021, episode 30. We know that this might be disappointing, but it's important to us that YouTube is a safe place for all. Um, 
a safe place for all, I guess, except for those who want to exercise their First Amendment right to free speech. It says, if content breaks our rules, we remove it. If you think we've made a mistake, you can appeal and we'll take another look. Keep reading for more details. How your content violated the policy. Content that advances false claims that widespread fraud errors or glitches changed the outcome of the U.S. 2020 presidential election is not allowed on YouTube. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, so you don't want the truth getting out. I see. So you don't want the truth getting out. Well, you know, here's the thing. Each one of us, regardless of whether YouTube thinks this is misinformation or not, each one of us will someday leave this earth and have to stand before our creator and give an account for what we've done here. And it's not going to go too well with people like those at YouTube who call a truth the lie, call the truth a lie, and call the lies truth. So we had, uh, we had looked to see, before I read all the way through the email, we had looked to see if, um, well, the description uh, was of episode 30, all the details the liberal media won't give you on the Waukesha Christmas Parade person of interest on this episode. But obviously, we talk about more than just that. So at some point, we got to talking about the presidential election. You know, I'm sure if they listen to each episode, they'll probably delete all of them. Because at the start of each episode, I say, well, of course, the presidential election last year was stolen. Of course it was. They know it was, too. But, but... As the uh, great philosopher George Carlin once said, there's a club, and you and I are not in it. So there you go. There's a club, but you and I are not in it. Now, in case you thought that the federal government needed to be curtailed in case you thought, hey, they're, uh, they're getting away with way too much. And what would be a perfect opportunity to try to put the brakes on them would be, I don't know, it's time... Um, Time to refund the government. Got a continuing resolution to uh, to fund the government through February eighteenth, twenty twenty two. You know to make sure they can keep coming after us. In case you thought, well, conservatives would say no. No, the federal government is so far out of debt; it's ridiculous, and they're violating our rights in too many ways, so conservatives need to stand up and say no. Well, you'd be sadly disappointed in a lot of the United States senators. Now, the Republicans all voted 
in the House against this. Yeah, I, I was shocked because we had 80 Republicans who voted the other day in the House to set up this... Uh, to set up this uh, national vaccine database to keep track of all of our vaccination status for each citizen of the United States across the country. So why wouldn't the same Republicans in the House vote to keep funding the government? I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they got enough negative feedback on the national vaccine mandate that they... Uh, we're kind of scared of you for once, but hard to imagine because the Republicans in the Senate sure weren't scared of you. So anyway, um, what we're going to do here is we'll play Marjorie Taylor Greene's speech in the House about why Republicans should hold the line on this, and then I'll tell you the Republican senators who didn't hold the line on this. And it's outrageous. It's outrageous. It's just as outrageous as the Republicans in the House the other day who voted to uh, fund this, uh, this national vaccination database, you know? Anyway, the great Marjorie Taylor Greene, a uh, freshman congresswoman from uh, Northwest, Ar- pardon me, Northwest uh, Georgia. And here she is. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I rise in opposition to the CR. The American people are $29 trillion in debt, thanks to Congress. And this Congress wants to borrow more money and more time to figure out how to run the government and how to pay for it. That is, that is an outrage to the American people. You want to talk about courage and responsibility? Do you know what courage and responsibility is? It's, it's learning how to manage the people's money. The people work hard every single day. They have to pay the taxes, and then they have to trust this house, this body, and the Senate to create a budget. But every single time, it's a budget that puts them further and further in debt. It is an audacity, the audacity of Congress to borrow more money and not be able to come up with a budget that makes sense and that we can pay for? What an outrage. What an irresponsibility. That isn't courage. That is not responsibility. That is out-of-control behavior that this Congress needs to rein in. This government should be shut down. You want to know why it should be shut down? Because the people in here, the people in here cannot control themselves. The people in here don't understand how to balance a checkbook. And the people in here do not deserve, deserve the responsibility on how to spend the American people's money. $29 trillion, $29 trillion, Madam Speaker. Shut General it down. General Lady's time has expired. Do not pass the CR. Shut it down. Okay, so they didn't pass it in the House. Well, the Democrats did. The Democrats are a majority in the House. But in the Senate, you got Chuck Schumer from the Senate floor following Senate passage of the 11-week continuing resolution, 69 to 28, meaning 19 Republicans voted for it. Chuck Schumer 
with a big old grin on his face saying, I'm happy to let the American people know that government remains open. So, who are the 19 Senate Republicans who voted yes with all the Democrats to avert a government shutdown? Well, you got Blunt of Missouri, Burr of North Carolina, Capito, West Virginia, Cassidy of Louisiana, of course, Collins of Maine, of course, Cornyn of Texas, of course, Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, of course, Cindy Hyde-Smith of Missouri. You know, people tried to tell Trump, hey, she's a rhino. She's a Democrat until recently. Please don't support her. Please support her opponent in the Republican primary in Mississippi. But as so often, Trump endorsed her because he endorses moderates over conservatives a lot of times. Anyway, the great philosopher John Kennedy out of Louisiana, the guy that everybody loves because he sticks it to the libs all the time, voted with the libs on this continuing resolution to fund the federal government until February 18th. Great going, Kennedy. Great going. Of course, the turtle, Mitch McConnell, Kentucky. Of course, Moran out of Kansas. Of course, Murkowski out of Alaska, Portman, Ohio. Mike Rounds, South Dakota. Of course, Marco Rubio, who used to sound like a conservative years ago, out of Florida. Richard Shelby, Alabama. Tom Tillis, North Carolina. Roger Wicker, Mississippi, and Young out of Indiana. You know, it, it's, it's really interesting. It's really odd. Mississippi, you would think, would be conservative. But they've never really had a conservative United States senator out of Mississippi. wonder why that is. Now, there are three Republican senators who didn't vote one way or the other. Didn't vote at all on continuing to fund the government through, what is it, February uh, February 18th. They didn't vote at all last night. And they are Haggerty out of Tennessee, Inhofe out of Oklahoma, and John Thune out of South Dakota. Wow. Wow. So Republicans never miss the opportunity to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. It's outrageous. There's no excuse for it. And if one of these senators is in your state, find out when he's running for re-election and support his primary opponent. Now, Biden has said a lot of odd things recently. Guess who he said uh, yesterday as president? Here we go. Occur. I've seen more <laughs> of Dr. Fauci than I have my wife. We kid each other, but uh, they look, who's president? Fauci. Uh, but all kidding aside, I, I sincerely mean it. 
All kidding aside, I sincerely mean it. Fauci's president. Okay. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Do you think he really has any idea what he's saying at any at any particular time? Senator Ted Cruz responded to that and said, as I have been saying, Fauci is the most dangerous bureaucrat in American history. You know? Fauci is the most dangerous bureaucrat in American history. That's true. What what else is Biden saying? What else is Biden saying? Well, it looks like uh, Peter Ducey of Fox News is concerned because uh, Biden sounds like he might be under the weather. Okay? So Peter Ducey of Fox News asks Biden about this, and it went something like this. First of all, Mr. President, uh, your voice sounds a little different. Are you okay? I'm okay. I have a test every day to see a COVID test. I have to check me for all the strands. What I have is a one-and-a-half-year-old grandson who had a cold who likes to kiss his pop. <laughs> and he's been kissing it my anyway, So, uh, but it's just a cold. Oh, that sounds creepy. I mean, given Biden's history with little kids, that sounds creepy. <laughs> and he's been kissing it my anyway, so, uh, but it's just a cold. Oh, that's creepy. Man, that's creepy. Um, no, I mean, with with a normal person... You'd say, well, it's just a slip of the tongue. It doesn't mean anything. But we're talking about Biden here. And I don't know if you've ever seen the videos of Biden with the little girls. But if you haven't, I'll tell you. So when you're the vice president, as Biden was for eight years, every two years in January, you get to swear in new United States senators And you also swear in United States senators who have been reelected. And it's kind of a big deal, and it's always shown live on C-SPAN. So, um, and they tend to bring the whole family, sometimes several generations. And everybody poses for pictures. And so what Biden would do would be to get a little girl in front of him to tell everybody, okay, look up, look up at the cameras, and then he would molest the little girls. And it was all on C-SPAN video. And you could find it still on YouTube if you if you know where to look. Do a search for Creepy Joe. And if you can't do the if the search doesn't work on YouTube, try DuckDuckGo. You can eventually find it. So anyway, no, seriously, he would grope the little girls. So when he says something, you know, you can't just say, oh, well, that's just 
Joe. I mean, he didn't mean anything by it. There's no reason to think he didn't mean anything by it. All right. Um, <clears throat> we've got audio. 30-second uh, audio of Joe sounding horrible. Keeps on coughing directly into his right hand. And we've seen this before recently. He'll cough into his right hand, and as soon as he stops talking, go over and start shaking hands with people. He's been told countless times, no, uh, you cough into your, 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 your elbow there, the jacket, he won't do it because he doesn't care because he doesn't believe all this garbage he's saying about the uh, coronavirus, about the Wu flu, about the China virus. So anyway, here is, uh, here is Dementia Joe. The actions that my administration has taken in partnership with, excuse me, with private business and labor, <clears throat> retailers and grocery stores, freight movers and railroads, these shelves are going to be, the shelves of our stores are going to be well stocked. We've sped up operations at our ports. For example, at the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, <clears throat> the two busiest ports in America over the last month, the number of containers left sitting on the docks for over eight days is down by 40%. Now, remember, because I'm sure there are plenty of places where there's an office pool. How, how long are they going to let them go before Kamala Harris and half the uh, cabinet invoke the 25th Amendment and get him out of there? Remember. If he makes it past the midpoint of his first term before they invoke the 25th Amendment, then theoretically Kamala gets to, to run in 2024 and 2028. But if they pull the trigger, say before noon, January 20th, 2023, then she only gets to run in 2024, but not in 2028. Just so you know. Just so you know. Terrible job numbers out today. And the job numbers get released while White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is live on The Morning Joke on MSNBC. And, you know, so she's kind of uncomfortable trying to uh, respond to what's going on. But, you know, in my mind, we're talking Jen Psaki, who during the Trump administration went over to Russia and actually posed wearing a hat with a communist star on it. So she's a, she's a good Marxist. Wants you to think she believes in freedom and democracy and the American way. But she's a good Marxist, so, uh, you know, in my mind, couldn't happen to a nicer gal, you know? This morning, MSNBC, morning joke, Jen Psaki, jobs numbers come out. Jobs number just crossed, 210 jobs just added, so 210,000. Um, so if we look at that breaking news right now, that's a number that feels a little, what, a little off? 
Well, I, I know this sounds a little archaic, but I can't comment on them until 930 uh, okay. by, by rules because I work at the White House. <laughs> yeah, but I will say uh, what people can expect the president to continue to say today, month to month, mm-hmm. is that what we're seeing are good trends that we are continuing to put people back to work, that we are continuing to see uh, participation in the workforce, that we are continuing to see the unemployment rate go down. But there's more we need to do to address core problems that have existed long before the pandemic. Because, Adrian, there's the supply chain. There's this number, um, which she can't comment on for an hour. So we'll keep her here. <laughs> it's, it's a little crazy. Um, here uh, we are. And, and, uh, and a lot of other issues that you brought up earlier. I, I can't do the rest of it. The president, she calls him. See, she has to continue this fiction that he's actually in, in, in charge. I don't call him that. Because A, the election was stolen, and B, everybody knows he's not in charge anyway. You know, it's one thing to say, hey, 1960, Mayor Daley Stole Cook County for JFK. So Illinois, which by all rights, Nixon won, goes in the win column for Kennedy. So they stole the election for Kennedy in 1960, okay? It's one thing to say that, but at least Kennedy was in full control of his faculties until tragically he was shut down by an assassin's bullet in November 22nd, 1963. But at least Kennedy looked like he was president. He, he wasn't some old fool doddering around who couldn't string two sentences together. So everybody called him President Kennedy. Because, you know, at least that guy looked like a president. But Biden, as we all know, is a laughingstock in front of the whole world. Everybody knows he's not in charge, so these people get paid, though, to act like he is. Now, something else I want to share with you, especially in light of the fact that both Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates have been quoted as saying that the Australians are doing a great job dealing with the China virus. Yeah, let me, uh, uh, the great independent journalist Jordan Schachtel says bright and early this morning, Fauci and Bill Gates continue to claim Australia and its internment camps are doing it right regarding COVID. If they had their way, they'd have non-compliant Americans taken against their will and locked up in camps. Remember that. And he links to an article from the Australian.com, Bill Gates praises Australia's COVID response. But he said it over and over and over and over again, okay? Bill Gates 
praises Australia's COVID response. He also links to a Forbes, Forbes magazine. What can we learn from Australia's COVID-19 response? Article from William A. Hazeltine. But it begins, Australia's COVID-19 response has been the envy of many countries with Dr. Fauci recently praising the country for being a world leader on containment and management of emergent variants. Emerging variants. Okay? Now, let me, uh, let me share with you what's actually going on in Australia. So this is from a video taken by a woman who's in an internment camp in Australia and the guard has come around to tell her what she can and cannot do in this camp. And it's, uh, it's horrifying. And believe you me, I believe the only reason they haven't started loading people on the box camps and taking them to, quote, internment camps, unquote, in America is our Second Amendment. And they're certainly trying to find a way around that. The ATF is on the case. So here, it's less than a minute and a half of this guard at this internment camp telling this woman what she can and can't do who's already in the camp. I'll give you a warning, yeah? It's an official warning that you have to stand above him and obey the rules all you get, yeah? And that's, we have to go to the rules again. I don't care. So am I allowed to go to the background. laundry? You're allowed to go to the laundry, but you've got to wear a mask, yeah? Yeah, right yeah. Eh? And you definitely can't go up the fence anywhere else. But you're allowed to go to the laundry, yeah? That's always been the case, yeah? Right, so if I was sitting just here, which is right near the fence, why are these guys in a cabin that's right near the fence? It makes no sense, does it? Yeah, but you can't leave your balcony to go to the fence to talk to somebody else. That's the problem, yeah? So if I was yeah, on that balcony... So there's, we always, there has to be lines everywhere drawn, yeah? And one the lines is you cannot leave your balcony and you cannot go to someone else. Where it makes no sense, where it doesn't seem right to you, that is the line, and that's what the law is, yeah? And that's how it goes, yeah? The law. Well, the There's a law that says that. direction, yeah? There's a toe direction, yeah? And how the behavior must be done, especially in this area, because it's much more highly infectious, and likely to be yeah? Highly infectious when all of us people are negative. So, so far, the risk is still very high, yeah? Mm. While you're here, can we just do that? Otherwise, the next time it's a $5,000 fine. We don't want to do it. It's a $5,000 fine if what? If, if, if you breach again. If, if I walk out onto that path. Without your mask on, for with, no reason other than the If I cross that yellow line that I've broken the rule, I will be issued with a $5,000 fine. That's right. Right. I don't know if you're aware of this. They put people in camps who have not once tested positive. For the Rona in Australia. They've put people in camps who have no symptoms and have tested negative for the Wu flu. I didn't know if you knew that. 
in Australia. And yet, Fauci and Gates are like, hey, that's the model. That's the way to do it. Boy, these guys, the Aussies, man, they, they got it down. They got it down. They know how to do it right. So, that having been said, remember, we do have a big election coming up less than a year away. We do have primaries coming up in the spring. And if you'd like to get rid of Say if you got if you're represented by a Republican US representative who voted earlier this week to give the feds four hundred million dollars to set up a nationwide vaccination database to track whether you're vaccinated or not. You need to make sure that somebody is running in that Republican primary to challenge the fascist who voted for that, who calls himself a Republican. Now, um, the overwhelming majority of people who listen to the Doc Washburn live stream or podcast are from outside of Arkansas, but Arkansas is still the number one state for downloads. So, if you live in central Arkansas, your U.S. representative is a guy named French Hill. And French Hill voted for the nationwide vaccination database earlier this week. He wants the feds to be able to track you to see if you're not vaccinated and to do what they think they need to do to make sure you get vaccinated, okay? Now, fortunately... He has a challenger, retired Colonel Conrad Reynolds. And if you would like to see an actual America First representative in central Arkansas instead of this rhino who's trying to help the feds cram slavery down our throats, you go to this website called electconrad.com and chip in a few bucks for Conrad Reynolds. I did that yesterday because I want to put my money where my mouth is. So that's the thing to do. Three out of the four U.S. representatives in Arkansas voted for this monstrosity, this national vaccine database to allow the feds to track your every move. One of them does not have a primary opponent yet. That's Bruce Westerman, who represents southern and western Arkansas. But on that one vote alone, he certainly deserves one. All right? It's, uh, it's outrageous. And it cannot stand, and we can't just you know, put our heads in the sand. You know? We can't just put our heads in the sand and pretend that everything's fine. Because it's not. 
It's not. And they will continue to push and push and push to see what they can get away with. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, that having been said, I want to uh, want to ask a couple of questions here. Talk about uh, government jamming stuff down our throats. I'm sure you're old enough to remember Obamacare, 2009, when Nancy Pelosi said, well, you're just going to have to pass it to see what's in it. All right? Remember that? They call it the Affordable Care Act. We call it Obamacare because we want everybody to know who's responsible for that monstrosity. So let me ask you something. Did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you need to go to a website called MyFamilyHealthPlan.com. My buddy Art Wilborn runs that website. He's a longtime fan of the Doc Washburn Show. And I'll tell you what, myfamilyhealthplan.com, you can save 30 to 50% on your health insurance plan. Get a personalized plan with low to no deductibles and no copay. All right? Get a personalized insurance plan. It doesn't force you to cover things like abortion that would violate your deeply held religious beliefs. Go to Art's website, myfamilyhealthplan.com, and uh, book a free consultation, and Art Wilborn will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. All right. That having been said, I don't know if you're aware in Chicago, they seem to be on their way to setting new records on the amounts of shootings, on the amounts of murders in the Windy City of Chicago. They got a prosecutor up there who does not take violent crime seriously. They got a mayor up there who does not take violent crime seriously. We have a lot of listeners in Illinois. You know what I'm talking about. But guess what? The important thing is in Chicago, the public school system up there thinks the answer to their problems is making sure all of the restrooms, including in elementary schools, are gender-neutral. Gender-neutral restrooms. Can you believe this? That's the panacea. That's going to solve all the problems. And here's a video. This is uh, about a minute 42 about how 
how proud they are of themselves for making it so first grade girls going to the bathroom are going to have to deal with uh, five and six-year-old boys coming in and tormenting them. Here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Cammie Pratt, the district's chief Title IX officer. And I'm Deb Spragans, the district's deputy chief Title IX officer. The new school year is off to a strong start as we've welcomed our students back to our school buildings five days each week. On top of ensuring that each of our schools is a safe learning environment, we're also taking steps to create more inclusive and supportive schools. One change that will be implemented this school year relates to our school bathrooms. In compliance with new federal guidelines, all CPS students and staff will have fair and equitable access to bathroom facilities that align with their gender identity. We will be providing all schools with updated signage that makes our bathrooms more inclusive. It will identify the fixtures available in each restroom and make it clear that all restrooms are open for use by anyone who feels comfortable. Staff will continue to have staff-only restrooms available to them. This is an incredibly important step to increase gender equity for all, which is why we will be requiring all schools to post this signage by December 1st of this school year. Our district's Office of Student Protections in Title IX is also working on a long-term plan to create more permanent signage for our bathrooms. I encourage you to visit our website at cps.edu forward slash OSP to learn more about our comprehensive approach to creating more inclusive, equitable, and safe schools. If you have any questions, you can email us at OSP at cps.edu. We look forward to having a safe and successful school year at every school in every neighborhood across Chicago. Thank you. Idiots. Idiots. They don't have the sense God gave a goat. If you have children, you need to get them out of public schools, and you definitely need to get out of cities. Idiots. Just thought I should share that with you. Unfreaking believable. All right, now, on an unrelated topic, the great Julie Kelly has another article out of American Greatness, and you need to hear about this. Her new article that dropped last night entitled, Will the Public Finally See What Happened in the Capitol Tunnel? Subtitle, When Americans Finally View the Surveillance Footage, January 6th will make alleged police abuse at Lafayette Square look like a day in the park. She says, for months, Merrick Garland's Department of Justice has tried every trick in the law books to conceal from Americans a massive trove of video evidence that captured all the activity of the Capitol complex on January 6th. Federal judges have played along approving hundreds of protective orders to keep video clips, particularly footage recorded by the Capitol Police's extensive closed-circuit television system, out of the public eye. Time, however, is running out for the government. Despite numerous discovery delays, Merrick Garland's prosecutors are gradually turning over video evidence to defense attorneys as they prepare for trial. All surveillance video from the Capitol security system is designated highly sensitive government material. Strict rules apply to the handling of every slice of footage. 
There's a reason why. She says, as we have reported, an American greatness for months, one of the most scandalous untold stories about January 6th is egregious police misconduct that in some instances amounted to brutality by D.C. Metro and U.S. Capitol Police. Had these attacks by law enforcement occurred in any other public or private setting against leftist protesters, the national outrage would have resulted in mass firings and immediate calls for for criminal investigations. For example, the House of Representatives held two hearings last year related to the investigation into allegations of excessive force by members of the U.S. Park Police in Lafayette Square, located across the street from the White House, on June 1st, 2020. Rioters protesting the death of George Floyd occupied the federal park for days, attacked law enforcement, set fires, and looted nearby property, which prompted the Secret Service to move President Trump to a safe location. An Inspector General report later confirmed rioters assaulted federal officers with bricks, rocks, caustic liquids, frozen water bottles, glass bottles, lit flares, rental scooters, and fireworks. But Lafayette Square rioters, June 1st, 2020, were portrayed as victims rather than the perpetrators of the violence. One activist, Kishan McDonald, a 39-year-old Navy, Navy veteran, testified to the House Natural Resources Committee in June 2020 that, quote, Police started throwing tear gas and flashbang grenades at us for no reason. We were retreating. Using weapons on us was ridiculous. It just made the situation dangerous, unquote. Officers were also accused of hitting protesters with riot shields and batons. A similar yet more violent situation played out on Capitol Hill January 6th. Open source video and testimonial evidence show Capitol and D.C. Metro police officers using flashbangs, sting balls filled with rubber projectiles, and excessive amounts of tear gas against peaceful protesters assembled outside the building an hour before the building even was breached. Other first-hand accounts describe physical assaults by police. One clip circulated on Twitter in late November shows several D.C. Metro police officers taking down and beating a protester who apparently breached a security line. At least one protester, Ashley Babbitt, was shot and killed by Capitol Police Officer Michael Byrd, although she was unarmed and posed no lethal threat. Democrats, most Republicans, and the entire corporate news media not only have ignored provable instances of police brutality on January 6th, but suggest so-called insurrectionists, including Ashley Babbitt, deserved their fate. The same news organizations that for years have covered every angle of alleged police misconduct are selectively quiet when it comes to the egregious behavior by law enforcement during the Capitol protests. But defense attorneys are now prepared to present their evidence about what police did on January 6th in the court of public opinion, which matters as much as the legal proceedings underway in the D.C. court system. Joseph McBride, a New York-based attorney representing some January 6th defendants, prepared a motion last month that detailed an horrific account of what happened in the Lower West Terrace Tunnel, the site of the most vicious 
brawls between police and protesters. In his filing on behalf of Ryan Nichols, a decorated Marine charged with several offenses, including assaulting law enforcement that day, Attorney McBride, based on his viewing a three-hour segment of surveillance footage, described police officers punching, kicking, macing, and beating with sticks and their fists several protesters trapped inside the tunnel. One D.C. Metro police supervisor was especially abusive, repeatedly beating an unidentified woman. Attorney McBride wrote of this supervisor, quote, the weapon this officer appears to be using is a collapsible stick designed to break windows in emergency situations. This stick is neither designed nor to be used against another human being, unquote. The woman was punched numerous times in the face. Blood was pouring out of her face, according to Attorney McBride's motion. When Nichols, who wanted to keep an eye on the targeted woman, sees her attempting to leave the tunnel, quote, she gets kicked and stomped in the head by an officer. She is screaming and so are the others, unquote. Now, this still unidentified woman is not Roseanne Boyland, the 34-year-old Trump supporter, from Georgia, who also died on January 6th. The D.C. coroner attributed her death to overdosing on her daily medication of Adderall. But new revelations about the circumstances prior to her death, cited in court documents and witness statements, raised disturbing questions. Roseanne Boyland apparently died outside the tunnel around 4.30 p.m. January 6th amid a fierce battle between police and protesters. Her body was then dragged through the tunnel by Sergeant Aquilino Connell, one of the January 6th Select Committee's star witnesses, according to his own testimony. Officer Gonell met up with Officer Harry Dunn inside the building. They kept her body at the House Majority Leader's office, Steny Hoyer, until paramedics arrived. Boyland was transported to an area hospital and officially pronounced dead after 6 p.m. Releasing the footage that Attorney McBride cites in his motion is crucial to the public's full understanding of what actually happened on January 6th. In a separate motion... This week, McBride urged the presiding judge to remove protective orders on eight separate video clips associated with his client's case. Arguing that the public only has seen cherry-picked videos produced by the government, McBride wrote that the time has come for the complete tale of January 6th to be told. America will never know the truth about Mr. Nichols or any January 6er until the sensitivity designations are removed. Ironically, the same corporate media complex that has promoted any number of falsehoods about January 6th and defamed Capitol defendants agrees with McBride. An application filed this week by the Press Coalition, a group representing 16 major news companies, including CNN, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal, also asked the D.C. District Court to release the videos in Nichols's case. On November 30th, the group's lawyers wrote, quoting, because the video exhibits our judicial records subject to an unrebutted presumption of public access, the court should grant this application and direct the government to release the video exhibits to the press coalition, unquote. Judge Thomas Hogan ordered the Justice Department to respond to the coalition's request by December 10th. 
It is nearly impossible to underscore how devastating the release of surveillance video from the gates of hell, as Attorney McBride described the scene inside the West Terrace Tunnel, will be to the accepted narrative about January 6th, coupled with other instances of police misconduct that day, including the random and unnecessary use of explosive crowd-controlled devices before any violence took place, January 6th will make Lafayette Square, six months earlier, look like a day in the federal park. That's a great Julie Kelly, political commentator and senior contributor to American Greatness, author of Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. And her new article and American Greatness is called, Will the Public Finally See What Happened in the Capitol Tunnel? Well, I certainly hope so. I'm certainly, I, I, I certainly hope so. And I'm honored to have interviewed the great Julie Kelly on my, uh, when I did the local radio talk show. But uh, perhaps we can have her back on. Perhaps we can have her back on on this new platform that we do here. So the FBI Washington field office has some pictures out of folks who apparently were outside the Capitol on January 6th. And most of them look like senior citizens that aren't hurting anybody. And the great Jim Hansen, President of Security Studies Group and former Army Special Forces Weapons, uh, author of the new book, Winning the Second Civil War Without Firing a Shot. He responded, Dear FBI, we caught an actual domestic terrorist in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Any chance you could spare some folks from your awesome trespassing investigation to check him out? How about that? How about that? There's another response here to the FBI Washington field offices putting out pictures of senior citizens milling about outside the Capitol. A guy says, here, I have one you can arrest. They call him Jim. And it's a picture of former FBI director James Comey. Another response to the FBI Washington field office putting out pictures of senior citizens milling about outside the Capitol on January 6th, apparently not doing anything. This response from Bonchi, writer over at redstate.com. He says, could you guys maybe work on figuring out why the Waukesha massacre happened in between trying to arrest people for standing around outside the Capitol? And of course, Julie Kelly just says, I regret to inform you they're doing it again. They're doing it again. Now, Greg Price over at X Strategies LLC, self-described crossing state lines enthusiast. He's got a video of uh, a Biden from earlier today, and here's how he describes it. When you wake up aggressively hungover and log into a Zoom meeting that you're completely unprepared for, here's Biden. 
This is a significant improvement from when I took office in January, a sign that we're on the right track. Because the extraordinary strides we've made, we can look forward to a brighter, happier new year ahead, in my view. But I also know that despite this progress, families are anxious. Yeah, he's just, he's just reading the teleprompter. Just reading the teleprompter. That's all. Just reading the teleprompter. Now, speaking of great new articles at American Greatness, I got to share one with you by Kyle Scheidler who is a great author, Kyle Scheidler, Senior Analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism at the Center for Security Policy. And she has a new article out called How the FBI Downplays Leftist Terror Activity. And the subtitle, The Investigation into the 2019 Dayton, Ohio Mass Shooting, shows the Bureau cannot be trusted to identify left-wing violence. She says, pro-Antifa social media accounts are taking a victory lap this week following the announcement that the FBI has ruled out a political motive in the 2019 Dayton, Ohio, mass murder of nine people carried out by Antifa supporter Connor Betts. By the way, one of the victims was his own sister. Connor Betts interacted with multiple Antifa-aligned accounts online including the so-called Socialist Rifle Association, SRA, a Marxist group whose members commonly provide armed support during Antifa actions. Connor Batts himself attended Antifa protests while armed and made statements calling for killing every fascist. That's a quote, every fascist. And urges comrades to, quote, arm, train, prepare, unquote, to oust Trump from office, according to evidence unearthed by Andy Ngo, a journalist with a long history of covering Antifa violence. Connor Betts can also be seen in images wearing Satanist and anarchist patches. Connor Betts, dressed all in black and wearing a mask, opened fire on a crowd outside the traditional Western-themed bar, Ned Peppers, before being killed by police. The FBI appears to have taken none of these known facts into account when it determined, quote, the evidence from the extensive investigation indicated the perpetrator, Connor Betts, was solely responsible for the injuries and deaths that were a result of his actions. He acted alone and was not directed by any organization or aligned to any specific ideological group, unquote. That's a lie, and they know it. The FBI instead emphasizes Connor Betts's apparent fascination with mass shootings of all types, even non-ideological mass shootings, and highlights mental health issues, including obsessive-compulsive disorder. It has nothing to say about the death of Connor Betts's sister either or whether Betts was aware of his sister's presence in the crowd. It may be reasonable to say that Connor Betts was not directed by any organization, though this is scarcely necessary for, politi- for politically motivated terrorism in the 21st century. As has been the case, for example, among Islamic State terrorists, ISIS. 
Individuals often conduct attacks they know will win the accolades of members of groups with whom they are aligned, even though they may not have received direct orders. Connor Betts, for example, publicly uttered his approval of the attack conducted by armed Antifa member Willem von Spronson, targeting a Tacoma, Washington area immigration and customs enforcement facility only one month before Connor Betts' own shooting spree, calling Spronson a martyr. So it's worth asking whether Connor Betts may reasonably have believed his own attack would be regarded in a similar manner by people he interacted with online. It's also not clear if the FBI developed an extensive understanding of Connor Betts' non-public contacts as it had struggled to acquire access to one of his many cell phones. Antifa is known to be heavily security conscious and to use encrypted communications and burner phones. Regardless, evidence that Connor Betts aligned himself with ideological anti, so-called anti-fascists is uncontrivable and easily available. Unfortunately, the willingness of the FBI to blatantly ignore publicly available information about a perpetrator's political motivations is equally well known. The FBI outraged congressional Republicans when it failed to identify progressive activist James T. Hodgkinson, who opened fire on Republican lawmakers during a practice for the congressional baseball game in 2017 as politically motivated, instead labeling his attack as suicide by cop. Like Connor Betts, James T. Hodgkinson had a substantial social media trail of political posts, which the FBI deliberately ignored, in addition to a list of Republican congressmen on his person prior to the attack. Law enforcement has also recently come under fire for ignoring the political motivations of Waukesha parade attacker Daryl Brooks, Brooks Jr., whose social media was replete with pro-Black Lives Matter and black identity extremism content. It's reasonable for the FBI to consider whether Connor Betts' mental health, use of illegal drugs, and other factors may have impacted his decision to conduct his murderous assault in 2019 in Dayton, Ohio. What's not reasonable is the FBI's insistence on ruling out, despite clear evidence, that Betts had an ideological affiliation with a known violent ideological movement, that he corresponded with groups from that movement on social media prior to the attack, and that Connor Betts praised an armed attack by an individual affiliated with one such group only one month prior to his own murderous attack. Unfortunately, the FBI continues to make clear that its assessments cannot be considered reliable when it comes to potential terrorist violence from perpetrators whose politics are deemed to be left-wing. This puts the FBI substantially out of step with other Western law enforcement and intelligence agencies, which do actively analyze the threat of left-wing terrorism. The FBI has repeatedly downplayed the threat of left-wing violence in support of a politicalized narrative which recognizes only white supremacist groups or America's so-called right-wing as a potential threat. Indeed, under the Biden administration's domestic terrorism strategy, mere adherence to beliefs ranging from objections to COVID vaccine mandates, to election integrity concerns, to opposition to critical race theory in public schools, have all been identified as hallmarks of violent extremism. 
even when there's no evidence of membership in supposedly extremist organizations. This being the case, local and state law enforcement should no longer be deferential to FBI rulings on the political motivations of perpetrators in cases which may have a nexus to terrorism. While the FBI has lead jurisdictions on terrorism cases in the United States, their refusal to assert a terrorism nexus should not dissuade local or state law enforcement from conducting their own investigations and bringing state terrorism charges where such legislation exists. Amen. That is the great Kyle Scheidler at American Greatness. That's amgreatness.com. And her article is entitled, How the FBI Downplays Leftist Terror Activity. Boy, they sure do, don't they? I mean, you know, after a while, after a while, doesn't there seem to be kind of a, a thread here? After a while, doesn't there seem to be kind of a standard operating procedure? Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Uh, by the way, Graham Neary, stock market investor over at Cube Invest, out there on Twitter last night, pointing out, and he brings the receipts. In August 2019, just four months before COVID hysteria began, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation agreed to invest $65 million. I'm sorry, only $55, $55 million in the shares of BioNTech, a company which had never released any products. They invested $55 million in a country, company that had never released any products, BioNTech. A little over two years later, these shares are now worth $990 million. Seems like they uh, really got a good return on their investment, don't you think? Yeah. Seems like they got a really good good return on their investment. Now, here's here's something that's one of those things that make you go, hmm, this is from... uh, Cambry over at CamVTV on Twitter. She says it's embarrassing to be a part of the generation where people laugh at the thought of an innocent baby being pulled from its mother's womb while, on the other hand, they're torn apart. Pardon me, let me back this up. Sorry, doing sleep deprivation here. It's embarrassing to be a part of the generation where people laugh at the thought of an innocent baby being pulled from its mother's womb and torn apart, but they cry when you say their pronouns wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of embarrassing. CNN has a story out. Studies confirm waning immunity from Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. CNN, of all places. Kyle Becker over at BeckerNews.com says Pfizer sold these therapy drugs as so-called vaccines that are 100% safe and effective. Now it's known they wear off quickly. They don't stop transmission. Thus, their experimental drug has failed by their own standards. So hard pass on the so-called boosters. All right. 
Now, <clears throat> speaking of big tech, big tech censorship, which we were earlier today, we announced that YouTube deleted one of our episodes. Twitter censors links to American Heart Association over vaccine research. Hear about this? Alan Bakari has a story over at Breitbart. Twitter is warning users that the website of the American Heart Association may be unsafe. After the American Heart Association published an abstract in one of its medical journals containing research linking mRNA COVID-19 jabs to heart inflammation. The abstract was published in Circulation, a journal on the American Heart Association, on November 16th. In their research, a team led by former cardiac surgeon Stephen Grundy appear, applied a cardiac test to measure a patient's five-year risk of a new acute coronary syndrome. The abstract claims a 14-point increase in the five-year risk of acute coronary syndrome of participants. However, the American Heart Association later attached an expression of concern to the study, warning readers that it contains potential errors. Well, of course, of course, because somebody got back to him and said, hey, sit down and shut up and know your place, right? Yeah. Somebody got back with him. And said, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You done upset some folk now, American Heart Association. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. You know, sometimes sometimes you get this... Uh, Sometimes you get this feeling, and all of a sudden... We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Ah, yes. Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. The big old car dealership right in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. Your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV you want the way you want you can do the whole thing online. You can do the whole thing online, and they'll deliver it to your door. All right. Tweet of the day. Tweet of the day. Responding to the New York Post story, Waukesha Christmas Parade attack suspect Daryl Brooks says he feels dehumanized in jail. The great Emmy Jewell. The great Emmy Jewell, who says she's a graphite pencil artist, says he's got a point. It is dehumanizing to be referred to as an SUV. Oh! See, because CNN, New York Times, a bunch of these big media places, right, are saying, are saying that an SUV, an SUV is responsible for the carnage at the Christmas parade, right? Uh, they don't even want to talk. They don't even want to talk about the guy that drove the SUV. 
See, so that's the joke. That's the joke. <laughs> oh, it's a lame one, I know. How does Red River your way even put up with me? Um, today's tweet of the day on the Doc Washburn Show. Uh, brought to you by Red River Your Way, the car dealership nationwide that believes in freedom, your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. All right. Now, that having been said, oh, wait, what's this? What's this? Uh, Dr. Robert W. Malone, the guy who invented mRNA vaccines and RNA as a drug. He's over at unityprojectonline.com. He links to an article out of Australia. The World Health Organization is urging countries to delay booster vaccines after emergence of the new Omicron variant. Really? And then he breaks into Mr. Rogers. Can you say original antigenic sin? There. I knew you could. So, let's take a look at this article here. Have you heard about this from anywhere else? Oh, oh, oh. So you link, you, you click on the link and you get uh, Sky News, a whole bunch of different articles about Omicron, and you're not going to be able to scroll probably far enough back to get to what he was talking about when he posted this yesterday morning. I see how it goes. Okay. But you get some other stuff that's interesting. How about this one from four hours ago? Antibody protection against Delta wanes to zero at 21 weeks after second jab for people not previously infected, according to a new study out published in Science Journal. Yeah. Oh, there's a, there's a lot out there that they don't want you to know about. Well, um, like Pfizer's own study, which we presented a couple of days ago, or was it just yesterday morning? Pfizer's own study that uh, the FDA wanted to let them keep secret for 55 years, but a federal judge ordered ordered that they release it. And lo and behold, come to find out that in the first three months of trials from December 1st, 2020 through February 28th, 2021, over 1,200 people died after taking the vaccine. Know what I'm saying? Yeah, they wanted to... They want to let you wait for 55 years to find out about this. Now, this is interesting. Daily Caller has an article about this. And so I open up Daily Caller, 
And, you know, sometimes you get, uh, you get this ad on top of whatever you're trying to look at. Covers up the whole page. And I kept on trying to X out the ad, and it kept on just opening up another page with the ad. But finally, finally, we get Daily Caller. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Let me see. Do a little control F here for the word Pfizer. Oh, okay. All right. So it's not on the home page anymore. But we'll do a little search for Pfizer and see how the Daily Caller is handling the story. This is going to be interesting. Uh, let's see. Oh, okay, so they've, they, they, they don't do it chronologically based. I see. So they got stuff from last year on here. I see. Well, look, there are more than two ways to skin a cat. Not everybody can do this. But what I'm going to do here, I'm going to go over to, uh, to Twitter, type in Daily Caller, right? Type in Pfizer. And I bet we'll get it. I bet we'll get it. Yeah, just hit up, click on latest. Uh, okay. Wait, have they have they deleted it? This is amazing. Okay. Well, at least they got Okay, they got they got um they got Biden from the other day. Let's see what he said. Deployment with every available tool. I want to reiterate Dr. Fauci believes that the current vaccines provide at least some protection against the new variant and the boosters strengthen that protection significantly. We do not yet believe that additional measures will be needed. But so that we are prepared if needed my team is already working with officials at Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson to develop contingency plans for vaccines or boosters if needed. If needed, well, of course, they'll be needed because they they need to keep them the the money coming in. You know what I'm saying? They need to keep the money coming in. Oh, they'll find a need for it. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are people in the pharmaceutical industries now who are billionaires who were not billionaires before all this went down. Now, I get Daily Caller and Red State confused sometimes. And so I need to share with you what Red State came out with earlier this week, because this is a big deal. New, Pfizer lawsuit details stunning accusations of COVID vaccine and monoclonal antibodies espionage. And this is the great Scott Hounsel over at Red State. He says, sometimes it's good to be Pfizer. 
especially when there's a pandemic, they can leverage their advantage to create a monopolistic market share of a vaccine that government literally buys from them and markets to patients or when they can manipulate the government into projecting their data for another half century. Pardon me, into protecting their data for another half century. Other times it isn't so good to be Pfizer, as was the case with Project Veritas' story, which showed Pfizer employees contradicting the government's vaccine narrative. And yet other times Pfizer runs into a situation so dire it could destroy their business for a decade to come. And pharmaceuticals, research and data regarding new drug candidates, including their COVID-19 vaccine formula, could potentially be worth billions with a B. Should a competitor get their hands on certain research and data, they would be able to sidestep years of costly lab research, allowing for an early and inexpensive release of a competitor drug. In October this year, Pfizer became aware of an employee, Shun Zhao Li, who had copied thousands of files from Pfizer's proprietary systems to both an online file storage system, Google Drive, and her own personal computer. These files allegedly contained information regarding the formula of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine as well as other cancer drug formulas on which Pfizer is currently working. To say that these documents could be worth billions is not an exaggeration. After confronting their employee, Shun Zhao Li, regarding the questionable actions, Li appeared to cooperate according to the lawsuit filed against her on November 21st. From the lawsuit, it says what Pfizer can say for sure is that its soon-to-be former employee, Shun Zhao Sherry Li, uploaded over 12,000 files, including scores of confidential Pfizer documents from her Pfizer-issued laptop to a personal Google Drive account and onto other personal devices. Upon learning of Ms. Lee's troubling conduct, Pfizer addressed it with her. Although Ms. Lee initially gave the appearance of cooperation, it turns out that Ms. Lee instead has misled Pfizer about what she took, how she took it, when and why she took it, and where those files and possibly others can be found today. All right. So Pfizer believes that Ms. Lee was on her way to something called Zincor, a rival pharmaceutical comp- company, which has been working on cancer drugs and likely would have been interested in Pfizer's monoclonal cancer treatments. And they're called Avlumab and Iranitumab. Now, Zincor denies any involvement and thus far has not made any comment regarding the suit or Ms. Lee's potential employment with Zincor. According to Pfizer, in their filed suit, Ms. Lee's email suggested she had accepted a position at Zincor and would be starting by the end of November of this year. However, it's the details of this case that should have everyone alarmed. First, by Pfizer's own admission, they have no clue as to where the documents went and who has possession of them today. Pfizer only assumes this was an act committed for the benefit of Zencor, even though, again, there's no proof that Zencor or any of its employees has possession of any of those documents or files. Pfizer's lawsuit alleges that somebody else 
may be in possession of the proprietary information naming additional John Doe's, essentially a legal placeholder, for additional to-be-named parties to the suit. Quoting again from the lawsuit, Had Ms. Lee left Pfizer honorably, she would not be named in the complaint, but she made a different choice. On her way out the door, she transferred onto personal accounts and devices over 12,000 files, scores of which contained Pfizer confidential and trade secret information, and tried covering her tracks repeatedly. She went so far as to provide Pfizer's security team a decoy laptop, leading Pfizer to believe it was the one she used to download the 12,000 files from her Google, Google Drive account. Forensic analyses confirmed it was not, and Ms. Lee or somebody else, including potentially John Doe's 1 through 5, likely remain in possession of the actual computer that contains those 12,000 files. Yet there are numerous issues with this stuff that I think Pfizer is intentionally ignoring or simply doesn't have the evidence to prove just yet. And even when Pfizer does get the information or can track down who has the documents, what can they do about it? If it isn't Zencore, then who does have those files? The potential answer to this is what spells total disaster for Pfizer. First, it's important to note that Ms. Lee is a Chinese national recruited by Pfizer from China in 2006. Ms. Lee's presumed publication history, which matches her timeline, shows that she also researches in conjunction with Nanjing University in China. Interestingly enough, Nanjing University is also conducting a study into the effectiveness of COVID vaccines. From the lawsuit. On August 2nd, 2006, Pfizer hired Ms. Lee as Associate Director of Statistics and Pfizer's Global Product Development Group, based in China. On or around August 22, 2016, Ms. Lee transferred to Pfizer's facility in La Jolla, California, and continued her role as Associate Director of Statistics. And about this Global Product Development Group, again from the lawsuit, Pfizer's GPD Group, is responsible for evaluating drug efficacy and safety in human clinical trials to obtain regulatory approval for drugs. Given her role and responsibilities as Associate Director of Statistics, Ms. Lee had access to highly confidential proprietary and trade secret information related to numerous vaccines and medications, including the COVID-19 vaccine, avalimab, and elronitumab. Okay, so... Ms. Lee was working on proprietary and confidential information about drugs, treatments, data, and formulas, which could be worth a significant amount. Additionally, it's no secret that China, or more specifically, the communist government of China, is no respecter of intellectual property laws. As we've previously covered here at Red State, Scott Hounsel says, China hacked into the U.S. Department of Defense, stole research regarding the development of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, and then later, with the help of Hunter Biden and the approval of the Obama administration, purchased the company that made anti-vibration technology for that very aircraft. A quick comparison of the F-35 and J-31 will show you that China doesn't innovate a darn thing. They steal it. 
Now, this leaves Pfizer in a very difficult position if the information was indeed sent to China. First, Pfizer would have next to zero recourse against China or any Chinese national companies in possession of that information. Second, even if they could take legal action, would Pfizer want to take the action with the potential that the Chinese government could retaliate or even ban Pfizer from conducting business in one of the largest markets in the world? It certainly could explain why Pfizer is being so gun-shy when it comes to highlighting Ms. Lee's country of origin or even suggesting that she could be working with Chinese officials. There is, however, another question we should be asking, where is the FBI? Regardless of the types of material stolen or the destination of that material, there doesn't appear to be at this point any investigation into Ms. Lee or her actions of Pfizer. We know the FBI is busy crowdsourcing their entire investigation into January 6th, tracking down angry members of the PTA and flying drones over Black Lives Matter protests in Wisconsin. But where are they on this case? The Economic Espionage Act of 1996 is a federal law that makes this activity illegal. Here's what the DOJ says. <clears throat> this Economic Espionage Act contains two separate provisions that criminalize the theft or misappropriation of trade secrets. The first provision, codified at 18 U.S. Code 1831, is directed toward foreign economic espionage and requires that the theft of the trade secret be done to benefit a foreign government instrumentality or agent. The second provision makes criminal the more common commercial theft of trade secrets, regardless of who benefits. There are a number of important features to the economic, this is amazing, the Economic Espionage Act, including a provision for the criminal forfeiture of any property or proceeds derived from a violation of the act. The Economic Espionage Act also permits the Attorney General to institute civil enforcement actions and obtain appropriate injunctive relief for violations. Further, because of the recognized difficulty of maintaining the secrecy of a trade secret during litigation, the Economic Espionage Act requires that courts take actions as necessary to preserve the confidentiality of the trade secret. This act also covers conduct occurring outside the United States where the offender is a citizen or permanent resident alien of the United States or an act in furtherance of the offense was committed in the United States. So Scott Hounsell of Red State says, the language is pretty clear. This law applies to both U.S. citizens and foreign nationals, resident aliens, as well as whether or not the stolen intellectual property benefits a foreign country or anyone else. So again, where is the... FBI. Why hasn't Ms. Lee been arrested and held on suspicion of violating this law until which time the destination of the stolen information is determined? At the very least, why hasn't Ms. Lee been prohibited from leaving the country? Why is it on Pfizer to civilly pursue action when criminal law covers this action? Now, these questions require answers, but yet another question that comes to mind is, where's the media on this story? The formula for the COVID-19 vaccine was stolen, a topical and important issue, and yet the story hasn't made a single major news network to date? Would not corporate espionage be a story? 
How about foreign espionage? Stay tuned as we continue to look into the story. That's uh, Scott Hounsel over redstate.com. Yeah, the FBI is too busy hassling parents who are concerned about whether children are being taught to the extent they actually show up at school board meetings. You know what I'm saying? That's what the FBI is busy on. This is, uh, this is something else, man. Where is the FBI? They're busy doing the bidding of their minions. That's where the FBI is. That's where the FBI is. All right, now, um, I think you deserve to hear what the governor of Washington State is up to, a guy named Jay Inslee. He says something remarkable yesterday. Uh, Omicron, there is much we don't know yet about Omicron. Uh, We know that we will have more information in the upcoming weeks. But the one thing we know about Omicron and this is a certainty, it makes sense to get vaccinated today, no matter what we find out about Omicron. Because right tonight, we're threatened by Delta. It would be really sad if people lose their lives today because they've been killed by the Delta variant while they're worrying about Omicron. Everybody who's got uh, Omicron so far has been fully vaccinated, but he doesn't care. Today. While they're worrying about Omicron today, and we really urge people to get their first vaccine and their booster at the appropriate time, and now everyone over the age 18 is eligible for a booster at the appropriate time. That's the take-home message about Omicron. Omicron. We do believe we have adequate sequencing ability to determine its presence. It's inevitable. It will be in Washington State. It has not yet been detected. We have one of the best uh, sequencing and surveillance systems. We're like sixth in the nation as far as the percentage of our cases that are are sequenced. And as you know, we have a way of doing that fairly rapidly because of the missing S component of uh, Omicron. So we will be active no matter what the science tells us. Right there. We will be active no matter what the science tells us. So this has never been about the science. It's about the the politics of it all, don't you know? It's about the politics, right? That's what this is about. Uh, Let me give you another example in case you haven't heard this before. Peter Ducey going head-to-head with uh, Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, as you advised the president about the possibility of new testing requirements for people coming into this country, does that include everybody? 
The answer is yes, because you know that the new uh, uh, the new uh, uh, regulation, if you want to call it that, is that anybody and everybody who's coming into the country needs to get a test within 24 hours of getting on the plane to come here. But well, what about people who don't take a plane and just these border crossers coming in in huge numbers? You know, that's a different issue. For example, when you talk, we still have Title 42 with regard to protection at the border. So there are protections at the border that you don't have the capability, as you know, of somebody getting on a plane, getting checked, looking at a passport. We don't have that there. That's a different issue. Uh, the great Clay Travis over at Outkick.com posted this on Twitter. He said, Dr. Fauci says everyone entering the country needs to be tested for COVID except for all the illegal a- immigrants or illegal aliens. That's a different issue. So absurdly hypocritical and ridiculous. And indeed it is. Indeed it is. But see, one of the things we do here is we, uh, we point out the absurdity. We, appoint, we point out the hypocrisy. Speaking of which, breaking over the postmillennial.com, Waukesha massacre suspect scored high in pretrial risk assessment but was released anyway. So, yesterday, the pretrial risk assessment for Daryl Brooks Jr., the man who reportedly plowed his car through Waukesha's Christmas parade last month, killing six, was revealed on social media, showing that the man scored extremely high on it. This indicates the court was aware that he was at risk of committing future crimes. In a pretrial risk assessment administered November 5th, Brooks scored a four out of six in failure to appear and a six out of six in new criminal activity. The assessment was ministered following Brooks's November 2nd arrest date in which he was arrested for allegedly attacking his ex-girlfriend. Brooks was charged with resisting or obstructing an officer, felony bail jumping, second-degree reckless endangering safety, disorderly conduct, and battery in connection to that incident. The assessment indicated that a check with the National Crime Information Center impacted his assessment score. Other risk factors included age, pending charges, prior convictions, and prior sentences. Noted at the bottom of the report, the person who administered the assessment said that Mr. Brooks is diagnosed with a serious and persistent illness in which he is not receiving treatment for. Despite numerous factors indicating Brooks was a risk to the public His bail for that arrest was set at just $1,000, and he was released just days before the deadly Waukesha massacre, November 21st. Milwaukee District Attorney John Chisholm called Brooks' bail inappropriately low, despite it being his office who set the bail. Milwaukee DA John Chisholm said the state's bail recommendations in this case was inappropriately low in light of the nature of the recent charges and the pending charges against Mr. Brooks. Despite this statement, in 2007, the same DA, John Chisholm, said he knew his progressive approach to law enforcement and prosecution could hurt people in the future. Quote, is there going to be an individual I divert or put into a treatment program who's going to go out 
and kill somebody. You bet. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed to happen. It does not invalidate the overall approach, unquote. So what does that tell you? It's on purpose. It's on purpose, and they don't care. All right, look, we talk a lot about health care on the Doc Washburn Show, all right? And it is such a blessing. I've always hoped to have a national audience. It's such a blessing that people from all 50 states listen to the Doc Washburn Show. And I have a chance to share with you the best-kept secret in American health care. So let me ask you something. Do you have migraines? Do you have neck pain? Do you have back pain? Okay, now look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Do you naturally lean one way or the other because that's how you feel most comfortable? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, my neck pain, my back pain. Let me explain to you how this works because this is the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for that atlas bone to get out of alignment, and if it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, your reproductive system, your digestive system, and yes, it can even cause migraines, neck pain, and back pain. Do yourself a favor. If you're in central Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. If you're outside of central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, Click on the tab that says find a doctor so you can find a doctor near you to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. You'll be so glad you did. These, these folks have helped me, helped my wife, helped so many people that we know. I've been under this kind of care since about 2008. I'm pretty sure I'd be in a wheelchair by now if I wasn't, and instead I'm feeling fine. I'm doing fine. Again, check them out. TurnMyPowerOn.com. You'll be glad you did. Now, I, I need to address a very important issue. Brandon Morris over at RedState.com has this article called The Left's New Way of Making White Christians Seem Like Racists is the Same Old Kafka Trap. Now, Franz Kafka was an author in the early part of the 20th century. And when I was in high school, we had to read some Franz Kafka. And he wrote a book, I think it was called The Prisoner, about a guy who had the secret police show up at his home and he was told that he was under arrest even though they didn't take him to jail. They just kept an eye on him let him continue going to work, come home, sleep at night, go back to work the next day. But the whole time they're telling him he was under arrest. 
and he couldn't uh, quite figure that out, and he certainly couldn't deny whatever the charges were because I, th I think they didn't tell him what the charges were. Anyway, uh, interesting piece of literature. Also interesting that they thought it was <laughs> suitable for high school kids to read. But let me tell you what Brandon Morse is saying over at redstate.com and how what the left is trying to do to white folks, Aboriginal Christians these days, reminds him of Franz Kafka. He says the left spends a good bit of time and effort into creating new words and phrases to make their opponents seem like horrible people. Funny enough, this was recently pointed out by none other than Dave Chappelle, who noted that LGBT activists like to create new words and phrases to try to win arguments. Now, the left has created a new word specifically meant to make white Christians maintain their bad guy status in any given moment or in any given argument, even when the left is clearly in the wrong. As highlighted first by the Daily Wire, the buzzword is called digressive victimhood. Or when people point out how they're the victims in a given situation when leftist groups come for them. It's a phrase created by, surprise, surprise, university professors from various places like UCLA and the University College of London who wrote this, and I quote, We show that members of dominant groups endorse digressive victimhood claims more, the, more strongly than conventional competitive victimhood claims, i.e. ones that claim reverse discrimination. Additionally, accounting for the fact that these claims may also stand to benefit a wider range of people and appeal to more abstract principles, we show that this preference is driven by the perception that digressive victimhood claims are more effective at silencing further criticism from the non-dominant group. Underscoring that these claims may be used strategically, we observed that individuals high in outgroup prejudice were willing to express a positive endorsement of the digressive victimhood claims, even when they did not fully support the principle they claimed to be defending, like freedom of religion or freedom of speech. So in other words, what they're saying here is, if an American Christian is being labeled as a homophobe, for not providing some sort of service to LGBT clients that goes against his religious beliefs and points out that he's being forced to act against his religious beliefs in a clear violation of religious freedom, the bake-the-cake scenario being a solid example. The left believes this is an attempt of changing the subject to take attention of the accusation. Addressing the accusation of homophobia directly is being called competitive victimhood but is a losing battle for the accused as the accused is already considered guilty in the court of public opinion. What they call digressive victimhood is the real threat since it often points out that the accusers are guilty of the very thing they're accusing others of. But all these fancy new titles and phrases for things are just another cover for a simple fact. It's another leftist Kafka trap. A Kafka trap is simple. Accuse someone of something, and then when they inevitably deny being guilty, use that denial of guilt as proof that the accusation is true. It looks a lot like this. You're a racist. No, I'm not a racist at all. Aha! People guilty of racism always deny they're racist. 
This is an attempt to put the burden of proof on the accused. In the court of public opinion, this is a very tough spot to get out of. The idea of digressive victimhood suggests that the accused is trying to change the subject in order to avoid having to answer the accusation, suggesting in and of itself that the person knows he's guilty and doesn't want to make the situation about his supposed guilt. This is clearly a roundabout attempt at implementing a Kafka trap and making those they accuse guilty until proven innocent in the court of public opinion. Now, you'd be surprised at how many people, Americans, believe that you are guilty and still proven innocent. You'd be surprised. All right, I got to share another one with you. This is from the Federalist, Tristan Justice of the Federalist. Again, I try to share with you important stuff, and this is very important. The article is entitled, Living with a Virus Requires Confronting Obesity. Dr. Anthony Fauci conceded Sunday, more than two years after COVID-19 emerged, that it is time Americans learn to live with a virus. On NBC's Meet the Press, as the Omicron variant triggers a new wave of pandemic panic, he said, we're not going to eradicate it. But Fauci added, we really need to be prepared for an Omicron outbreak with 32 or more variants in that very important spike protein of the virus. Of course, being prepared in Fauci land means compulsory vaccination, endless mask wearing, and a forever lockdown. Back in March on CNN, Fauci said, if, no, if normally means exactly the way things were before we had this happen to us, I can't predict that. True preparation for a future of endless variants, however, is an urgent and immediate commitment to confronting the underlying epidemic that is obesity, a primary COVID comor- comorbidity. New variants will always be in the pipeline. Popping up as the virus spreads, leading to new vaccine boosters engineered to better protect individuals from the evolving disease. If we keep pulling back on life with every new variant, however, and demand universal compliance with with endemic boosters, we'll never return to anything that even resembles normalcy, let alone reclaim the virtues of individual liberty or personal responsibility. Americans have become too comfortable with shutting down their neighbors' lives for the sake of their own risk aversion. One major way to protect oneself in the COVID era is to maintain a healthy weight where in the event a variant does emerge that evades vaccine-given immunity, Americans will be in better shape to confront it. Right now, most Americans are not healthy. According to the latest data from the CDC, more than 42% of Americans qualified as obese in 2017 and 2018 marking a 31% spike from 1999 to 2000. More than 70% of adults 20 years old and older were overweight. Considering the CDC statistics are now three years old and precede the pandemic, the number of Americans struggling with weight already on an upward trajectory is almost certainly far higher. According to data from the Epic Health Research Network, 
tracking the weight of nearly 47 million patients in the first 14 months of the lockdowns, the average American continued to gain weight. Well, I guess so. You weren't allowed to go to the gym anymore, right? More than 6 in 10 Americans reported undesired weight gain, according to the American Psychological Association. Dr. Tim Logman of the Wausau Asperis Hospital Cardiologist and Obesity Treatment Program in Wisconsin says, our population is hugely sick. We don't really understand health. Health starts with a healthy diet, a healthy lifestyle. Dr. Logman told the Federalist, it was conceivable Americans would react to new coronavirus variants far differently if Americans maintained a healthy weight, offsetting other comorbidities in the process. Beyond tripling one's risk of hospitalization for COVID-19, obesity has also been linked to heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and certain types of cancer. In March, CDC data showed nearly 80% of those hospitalized with the coronavirus were overweight or obese. Got it? Dr. Logman said at the beginning of the pandemic, the big concern was overwhelming the healthcare system, right? And if your population doesn't get sick and doesn't end up in the hospital, then they don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Uh, Darius Mozafarian, a cardiologist and dean of the Tufts Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy, told the Boston Globe in November his research shows 64% of all hospitalizations for COVID could have been prevented. If we, have a, if we had a metabolically healthy population without the rates of obesity and diabetes and hypertension that we have now. In other words, the COVID crisis wouldn't be as much of a crisis as if a, health, as if a public health crisis hadn't already existed. If Americans weren't so at risk due to widespread obesity, perhaps businesses wouldn't have had to have been shut down. Graduations would not have had to have been canceled and overdoses might not have reached record highs. The death toll attributed to coronavirus certainly would, have, would not have eclipsed 778,000 within two years. Dr. Logman told the Federalist, when something like COVID comes along, it just wipes us out. We're just set up. The Western world, according to South African doctor Angelique Coetzee, who was the first to discover the Omicron variant, is already overreacting to the news of its, of its existence even at this poor baseline of public health. The world will continue to overreact so long as it refuses to act on the underlying epidemic. Well, that's true. But, of course, this death toll attributed to be 778,000 is untrue because the FDA has already admitted only 6% of the people they say die from COVID actually die from COVID. The other 94% die with COVID. In other words... Somebody uh, dies of uh, uh, diabetes, lung cancer, and, uh, and ALS. But they mark them COVID positive, so they, they chalk it up to COVID. Got it? Understand? And that's been going on. I mean, they admitted that over a year ago, that 94% of them had over two and a half other comorbidities. Only 6% of the people died chalked up to um, COVID, actually just had COVID and nothing else. Now, I don't want to dwell on this Alec Baldwin thing and the shooting and everything, but um, in his little ABC interview with George Stepan, all of us, 
Baldwin explained that as he cocked the firearm he was using, putting the hammer of the weapon under spring tension in preparation for firing, he let go of the hammer and the gun discharged. So that sounds like firing a gun to me. But again, he uh, he insists that he's not responsible and he doesn't know who it is. But he was the guy with the gun in his hand. And he was also the the producer of the movie, but can't chalk it up to him, can we? Uh, the great actor Nick Searcy says Alec Baldwin has a narcissistic personality disorder and that narcissistic sociopaths are incapable of feeling guilty. And so that may very well be. That may very well be. It would not surprise me. Um, by the way, have you heard about this new CIA scandal that came out? Yeah. New CIA scandal. Declassified CIA files say staffers committed sex crimes involving children and they weren't prosecuted. New declassified, declassified CIA inspector general reports show a pattern of abuse and a repeated decision by federal prosecutors not to hold agency personnel accountable. Over the past 14 years, the Central Intelligence Agency has secretly amassed credible evidence that at least 10 of its employees and contractors committed sexual crimes involving children. Only one was prosecuted. Revelations are contained in hundreds of internal agency reports obtained by BuzzFeed News, of all places, through Freedom of Information Act lawsuits. CIA employee had sexual contact with a two-year-old and a six-year-old. He was fired. Another purchased three sexually explicit videos of young girls filmed by their mothers. He resigned. The secret CIA files. CIA files say staffers committed sex crimes involving children. They weren't prosecuted. And there's a link here to the FOIA request, the Freedom of Information Act request. And you can read the FOIA lawsuit to unseal the CIA child sex abuse files. Linked to over 3,000 pages of CIA files on his child sex abuse cover-up unsealed by the FOIA lawsuit. BuzzFeedNews.com has a story. CIA files say staffers committed sex crimes involving children. They weren't prosecuted. So, <clears throat> a CIA employee signed an affidavit admitting he used a government laptop to view as many four, as 1,400 photographs and videos of girls as young as 10 being abused by an older guy. A federal prosecutor declined to charge the man in favor of administrative action by the CIA. The only two cases of CIA employees involving sex crimes against children, which are known to have led to criminal charges, both parties were also accused of serious offenses related to classified information. Gee, I wonder if they are open to uh, blackmail. It took 10 years 
Ariel Ariel Kaminer, uh, executive editor for Investigations at BuzzFeed News, says it took 10 years of FOIA requests and multiple lawsuits to bring you the CIA Inspector General logs. It's amazing, isn't it? And BuzzFeed, by the way, is certainly not known to be any kind of a right-wing publication. But, but, they, uh, they got what they got. So, reading through this thread from um, An Open Secret, that's the uh, profile over at uh, Twitter, An Open Secret. And so they reached out to General Michael Hayden and said, you know, it's been 24 hours since BuzzFeed published CIA files detailing many agents con- committing sex crimes upon children and never being prosecuted. You are a former CIA director. This was on your watch. Any comment? And, of course, of course, there's no comment. And they reached out to... Uh, General Michael Hayden again and said, as former CIA director, can you explain how an agent can admit to a massive illegal stash of photos of young children being sexually abused and was never charged with a crime? And, of course, there's no comment. There's no response from General Hayden. Now, we look at the, uh, at the article about on the Daily Caller, CIA covered up staff sex crimes committed against minors by Aylin Evans, their tech reporter. The Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, was aware that at least 10 members of its staff allegedly committed sex crimes against children, although only one employee was ever prosecuted, according to released documents first reported by BuzzFeed News. One CIA employee, well, it, it, it details some of the stuff I've already shared with you. But interestingly enough, the um, the article has a picture of uh, John Brennan, was CIA director for a lot of this. Um, <clears throat> many of the cases were referred to federal attorneys who sent all but one case back to the CIA to deal with the matter internally rather than prosecute the employees. When reached for comment, a CIA spokesperson told the Daily Caller News Foundation that the CIA takes all allegations of of possible criminal misconduct committed by personnel seriously. Oh, of course, of course, sure, of course. While the Eastern District of Virginia, which reviewed many of the cases, told BuzzFeed that it takes seriously its responsibility to hold accountable federal government employees who violate federal law within our jurisdiction. Oh, of course. That's why you only prosecute one of the 10 and send everything else by the, back to CIA. Sure. In addition to alleged sexual crimes, the internal reports revealed several other improprieties carried out by CIA staff. One CIA employee was investigated in October 2018 for using CIA credentials and computer access to conduct unofficial searches on her brother. Yeah, okay. Yeah, sure, we believe all that. Sure, they, they, they take it seriously. 
That's why hardly anybody ever gets uh, prosecuted. They're taking it so seriously. You know? Yeah, that's, uh, that's just so serious. Remarkable. Just remarkable. Now, the great Jim Treacher out there on Twitter says, um, Alec Baldwin holds the record for guest hosting Saturday Night Live the most times, 17. Has any other guest host ever killed anybody? And a guy named Stephen L. Miller posted a picture of uh, Hillary Clinton on Saturday Night Live. And this said, allegedly. And then he said, technically, Hillary Clinton didn't actually host Saturday Night Live, but then technically Vince Foster didn't actually just drag himself from one location to the other. So, you know, so you got that. So you got that. Um, so. So, yeah, so that's, that's probably as good a place as any to end today's uh, <laughs> today's show. All right, uh, you've been listening to episode 38 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier the tenth. Well, that's the way it is. Friday, December third, twenty twenty one.